At Cool Air Products, we developed AC Smart Seal Quick Shot with professionals in mind. It's the only product on the market that's three in one, with sealant, lubricant, and UV dye all in a single application. It's non toxic, non flammable, 100% safe to the touch, eco friendly, and compatible with all refrigerants. It's a safe solution option, backed by years of R&D, Intertech tested, and has sealed millions of leaks. AC Smart Seal, the professional's choice. What's up, guys? Welcome back to the HVAC Know-It-All podcast. It's Good Friday when I'm recording this. I'm off. I hope that you guys have the luxury of being off. If you're working, hey, that's life sometimes. That happens. So my family celebrates Easter. And one of the things my wife told me I can't do today is eat meat. So I'm a little upset about that, but we'll figure something out. Anyway, we got a great podcast for you guys. We have a gentleman by the name of Ian McTeer on the podcast. He's been in the HVAC trade for a very long time. He's retired now. He's a lot of experience. Okay, but he does write articles for a magazine called HPAC, H-P-A-C, Heating, Plumbing, and Air Conditioning. Now, I came across an article that he wrote very recently called Hybrid Mechanical Systems, Here Comes the Future. Okay, and... It gives a little bit of history on um, heat pumps and how these energy efficient or seemingly energy efficient units um, started popping up after 1973 when we had the, um, the embargo, the oil embargo put against the US by OPEC. So we're going to talk about that. Ian's going to give his opinions on how we can create comfort in a home and reduce hot spots and cold spots by creating a hybrid system by using multiple pieces of equipment or integrating multiple pieces of equipment. Because let's face it, in a home these days, we have the main floor, the second floor. In the summer, the main floor seems to be comfortable, but the second floor is always warmer, right? That's one of the main complaints. And reverse in the wintertime. The main floor seems comfortable, but the second floor seems a bit cooler. That's kind of what happens in my home. I don't know about you guys, but anyway, guys, that's that's what we're going to discuss on this podcast. But before we get into the meat and potatoes, I wanted to discuss a fan motor I changed uh, just yesterday, actually. So condenser fan motor on the bottom was a ground wire attached. Now that ground wire went from the bottom of the motor and fastened into the bracket the motor was sitting in. So I noticed that the bottom of the motor was touching the bracket already like some pretty good surface area touching against each other now a lot of people cut that ground wire off and i'm thinking hmm what should we do here i was going to cut it off um, but then i started to think i put out a post asking and i actually put out a post saying i'm gonna get rid of it but then i called the motor manufacturer the motor was manufactured by gentech when I called up um, tech support, they answered Century. So Century and Gentech must have some sort of affiliation. So I told the tech support technician exactly what um, I was dealing with. The ground wire, it's already touching the bracket. Is it redundant to do this? Can we get rid of the wire? And what he explained to me was, if you don't use that wire and create a positive ground connection, that the UL certification, uh, UL won't recognize it after that. So I can tell it's grounded by looking at it. But according to UL standard, standards, it's not. So I hook the wire back up and, and that's it. So going forward, guys, if you see that, yeah, the motor might be grounded. It's probably going to trip the breaker. It's probably going to trip the fuses. But I guess there's no harm. And using using and utilizing the ground wire and hooking it back up, anyway, right? Especially if somebody's coming along and possibly inspecting this stuff. So let's get into the podcast, guys. Ian's coming up. Hybrid mechanical systems. This is the HVAC Know It All podcast. I'm your host, Gary McCready. This 
this True Tech Tools Minute will be a double whammy because I just opened out of the box a pretty sweet tool. This is the, um, hold on, I have the uh, the box right here or kind of the packaging. So this is the Navac NVR1 valve core removal tool. It's two tools in one. And the reason they say that is because it's got a 516s fitting and a quarter fitting, quarter inch fitting on it. Okay, um, it's used to pull Schrader cores live, so we can change them under um, load, like on a charge system, or we can pull the Schrader cores to pull a vacuum, uh, make it more efficient, right? Um, it's got a ball valve, easy isolation, and it's rated to 20 microns. Vacuum rated AF. You know what the vacuum police is like. So you're safe from evacuation incarceration if you use the tool. And guys, True Tech Tools, you're going to save 8% on that tool with promo code KNOWITALL. And if you want to save on Testo stuff, you got to sign up for the preferred Testo pricing. And I'll leave the link in the podcast notes as always. So who has bought their 557, 570, or 550 digital manifold from Testo? Hands up, I guess. Who has signed up for the um, mail-in rebate to get your Weeha toolkit with the needle nose, the side cutters, and the three screwdrivers? Because that is totally free when you purchase one of those digital manifolds. Pretty sweet set, $100 value from Weeha, sexy German hand tools. Guys, you... You want that tool, you purchase the manifold, you get that absolutely free as a gift from Testo to you. So guys, um, I found on the yellowjacket.com website that they have this cool hose. The hose on the one side has the fitting for the large, like 100 pound, 125 pound cylinders. It's already attached to it. I thought that was pretty cool because I've had a few of those uh, connections or fittings, but I've lost them over time. Right. And, and you can't leave them on because those cylinders, they have those big, um, those big caps you put on top to protect the valves. So you can't exactly leave that fitting on. Um, so yellow jacket has them available. And, and from what, um, some reading through some comments after I posted it, supposedly you could order it at different lengths and and different hose diameter i haven't looked into that myself but some people are telling me online that if you order through your wholesaler they will customize that hose for you so it's a, a good thing to look into so yellowjacket.com um, you'll see that hose there pretty cool uh, pretty cool hose i was unaware of it until i saw it this week uh, guys cool air products i just did my little experiment with smart shot okay smart shot is an additive to a system that's a lubricant based additive that contains a catalyst that's supposed to break down oil fouling that's insulating on the inside of the coil it's insulating heat transfer so i shoved it into a system conditions were the same ambient um, load on the machine they were the same i put it in a five ton circuit Okay, six days later, my subcooling went up, my superheat went up, and my discharge pressure came down. That tells me I was absorbing more heat in the evaporator because I was getting superheat, which I wasn't in the first place. I posted this on LinkedIn, Facebook, and um, Instagram. I posted the pictures of my gauges, my Testo 557s, taking the readings. No superheat, and then when it came back six days later, I had superheat. My subcooling was lower. So it tells me that it did something. It made that system more efficient. I'm going to continue to experiment, but I've been hearing there's some uh, quite, of, quite a bit of success stories using this stuff. So guys, you guys got to check that stuff out. Um, I changed the fan motor this week. York fan motor, it's got those uh, silly plugs that mount on the bottom. You guys zip tie them so they don't fall out. But to protect them from moisture, what I do is I take some refrigeration technology silicone grease. I put it around the fitting. I shove it in. Okay. That silicone grease will kind of bunch up 
and protect that. And then all you do is take a rag and you clean around so it's nice and neat. But that silicone grease is going to create a barrier to moisture so the moisture doesn't get out inside and short out that plug or potentially that fan motor. It's a very, very cool trick. I've been doing it for a while now. And it's good for all kinds of things like that. All kinds of connections that may come in contact with moisture. You can protect it by using the silicone grease, right? So House Call Pro guys, I've already mentioned, I went through the program with Joshua Liu, um, who's one of the reps over there. He sat down on his computer. I linked in with my computer through the web, checked it out. Very, very cool. Very, very simple. I'm going to leave a link in the podcast notes if you guys are interested in a free trial and a reduced cost in the first month. Ian, how are you doing tonight, sir? Very good, thank you, Gary. Nice to be with you. It's it's really awesome to be with you. And like I was telling you a few minutes ago, um, you've kind of uh, I, I, I've seen you commenting on my posts on LinkedIn and other people's posts on LinkedIn. And what I really like about the way you respond is you're very thoughtful, and 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 your responses um, like they're thoughtful. And, and they're also intelligent. So I really appreciate the fact that you take time to go through the feeds and, and do that for people because I've learned from it and I'm sure that you've taught some other people some, some stuff from, from your knowledge through time. So um, I'm glad we could get you on the podcast and thank you for being with us tonight, Ian. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for the kind words. Yeah. Hey man, it's, I'm just giving them right back. So um <laughs> So you write. Um, we we need to get to know a little bit to, to know a little bit more about you. You uh, write for a magazine um, called H Pack Heating, Plumbing, and Air Conditioning, right? So um, how does that, Correct, yeah. so, so how does that give, give us a little bit of your background um, through the industry and, and how you, you came to writing for the magazine? Well, I've been. I started, I guess, in the late 1970s. Uh, that's when I got my gas fitters license. <laughs> uh, seems like forever ago. And after, you know, years of working for various and sundry contractors, and uh, I was in a small business with a partner for seven or eight years. Uh, we're still friends, by the way. Um, I finally, uh, after getting my refrigeration ticket, I finally started to uh, realize that. Uh, uh, perhaps, you know, there was a bit of a different angle I could pursue. And I was actually invited by a wholesaler one time to give a talk on a particular product that they were selling. And uh, it went over very well. And uh, before I knew it, I was doing more and more presentations. And then eventually, uh, some other companies took notice of me and I, I started to work uh, ultimately I went to work for uh, EMCO in 1997 as the trained field service representative. And I stayed with EMCO until just after the year 2000 when the train company actually took over distribution in Ontario. And I worked for the train company as a field service representative until, well, basically until retirement, which was uh, two, three years ago now. When when you say train, are you talking about T R A N E, like nothing stops a train, like the manufacturer of, of uh, equipment? That's correct. Yeah. Okay. Cool. All right. I worked for the residential division and what was known as a dealer sales officer, DSO. Okay. And I I just uh, you know I essentially you have to become a product expert. You know you orient and train new dealers and uh, support installers and technicians and you do telephone field technical support and uh, assist with the sales training that sort of thing liaise with parts department and the warranty people so it's a pretty all-encompassing job and i certainly learned a lot over the years and, and i really hope that i helped some people too which was the, the point of it all in my view oh I'm, I'm, I'm sure you did i'm sure you did um so, so the real question everybody wants to know is, get, what, <laughs> they say nothing can stop a train, but what, what really can stop a train? I'm just kidding. <laughs> you, don't well, to, you, you don't have to answer that question. <laughs> well, 
Well, the tagline is "It's hard to stop." The oh, train. sorry, it's hard to stop the trade. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. <laughs> and you so, know as well as anyone else that it it you can do it quite easily if you put your mind to it. Yeah, yeah, or exactly. not put your mind to it. Exactly. Cool. Well, so I was sitting um, at home and I get the the H pack. I don't, you know what? I don't even know how the H pack magazine started being delivered to my house. I, I don't even recall um, signing up for a subscription. Maybe it's because of the trade show in Toronto that was on last year. Maybe it's it's through that somehow. But it That's just started. Probably, it just, yeah. yeah, probably. So it just started showing up to my door, and uh, so I grabbed it. Um, this was about two or three weeks ago. I grabbed it and I, and I started reading it and flipping through and I saw an article. It said hybrid mechanical systems. Here comes the future. And I started reading it and then I got to the end and I noticed your name was there and I'm like, Oh, there's Ian, Ian from, from LinkedIn who I've talked to. I said, that's a really cool article. I said, maybe I should get a hold of him and, and discuss this because it was really interesting because it's, it's so true. And, um, we'll get into the the article in a second, but I found um, the fact that you mentioned in the article that um, implementing maybe one or two systems, zone systems and all that, to help make comfort cooling and comfort heating a thing, um, is a, a lot of companies are not thinking outside the box that way. So um, let, let, let's get into the to the article here. So the, the first note I have is kind of um, about the U, the oil embargo placed on the U.S. and how, and that was in 1973, and how it started a trend of um, companies promising to save money um, through more efficient equipment. Right. So you want to start off yes. there. Okay. Well, yeah, that was the famous. I guess it was the Six Day War in which the United States was punished for supporting Israel. So they. Uh, the OPEC nations enforced an embargo, an oil embargo, and that set off a chain reaction of uh, events. Uh, I remember traveling to Florida that, that year, later that year, and, uh, oh, you could only drive 55 on the highway, and uh, the gasoline was rationed. And it was terrible. So what happened was the U.S. Department of Energy uh, decided to, um, you know, they... Uh, Americans were worried about being so dependent on foreign oil, and they realized that, uh, especially that, uh, you know, heating and cooling equipment, you know, could be a lot more efficient and save those those barrels of oil. So that's when they first started enforcing these efficiency regulations, or at least bringing them out, and the enforcement came later. So, you know, the industry has just been... I guess we've had wave after wave of, of uh, developments in, you know, gas combustion technology and uh, electric motors and that sort of thing since then. And the implementation and, you know, the maintenance of those things has been uh, on the drawing board ever since for, for all of us, I think. Mm-hmm. So the, um, I guess what, what came out of, 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 of that first part of the article was, jumping into the hybrid heat pump um, yes. and, and, and a dual fuel heat pump. Um, can you explain what you meant by dual fuel heat pump? Well, that was one of the first innovations that we saw. It, it was a, a, a heat pump that was added on to a gas oil or electric furnace. Okay. And so, so basically uh, a thermostat would decide, the indoor thermostat would decide which unit was going to run until the outdoor temperature got too low, at which point another control would shut it off and allow the uh, auxiliary heat to take over. So there were basically two types of systems then. You had what was called an all-electric system where a heat pump operated with an electric furnace or air handler with the the coil being upstream of the electric heaters. So that allowed the heat pump and the electric heaters to run at the same time. Okay. So with that type of a system, you could stage on the electric heat and still have the heat pump running without uh, 
you know, overheating or damaging the compressor. Uh, and the other type of system was an add-on where the coil was downstream of the heaters. In that type of system, you had to have what was called a balance point. And the balance point is where the, the capacity of the heating equipment uh, loses out to the uh, increased demand for heating. So eventually, the outdoor unit's going to have to shut off and the indoor unit's going to have to take over. So that was a, that was a, uh, the second type of, and probably the most common uh, system at the time. So people would, you know, they'd have a heat pump added on. Maybe they were in the market for an air conditioner, but the contractor said, hey, why not have a heat pump and uh, save some money on the heating side? Um, and people thought it was a good idea, and uh, away we went. But unfortunately, it just didn't work well. The initial heat pumps were very problematic, and uh, a lot of installation, excuse me, installation-related problems. Uh, the controls were very rudimentary. Uh, you ran into a situations where this you know the heat pump would run and then the backup would come on and then the, the heat pump would come on again right away so uh, and they would be in defrost forever which is a very wasteful mode so the the early hybrids were not that successful i would say some of them worked well but um i would say by and large um the early heat pumps were a failure, at least in Ontario, in cold climates, if you will. Yeah, so I was uh, that was part of the, your, your article. It said they did not perform well in climate region uh, five. And I've never I've never heard that before. Climate region five. What does that that mean exactly? Well, the the the, the parameters, uh, the ratings for a, a residential heat pumps, air conditioners, uh, ductless splits, boilers, furnaces. They're all compiled by an organization called the um, Air Conditioning, Heating, and Refrigeration Institute, or AHRI. Okay. And the numbers that are generated um, and collected by AHRI are developed by the manufacturers themselves. So every manufacturer will test all their equipment combinations and come up with the SEER numbers and the HSPFs and the EERs and all of those things. And the AHRI uh, documents those uh, on their website, AHRI, uh, what is it, uh, AHRIorg.org, I think it is. So you can look up the numbers for any manufacturers equipment and, and see what they're saying now of course you know you might think because the manufacturers are handing off the numbers to this organization that there could be some cheating but this this hri does field test they spot test and they make sure the manufacturers are uh, are delivering the correct numbers so it's a, a trustworthy organization so when they when they print a number uh, you can you can take it to the bank pretty much, but what what AHRI AHRI did was in order to set the standard to develop these numbers, they had to pick a climate region to base the numbers on. So essentially, climate region four is an area of all oh, the central United States uh, and. It, it extends actually up into Canada, I think on the West Coast, I think it touches the bottom end of BC. Uh, but typically in climate region four, the heating load hours are typically less than 2250, I believe it is. So, and there's climate region three, two, and one as you get further south where there's basically no heating required and more cooling required. Mm -hmm. So, when the numbers were published for heat pumps, and still to this day it's true, all of that data that you see, especially the HSPF number, is based on climate region four. 
Well, Canada, almost all of Canada and many of the northern U.S. states are in climate region five, which is greater than 2,200 load heating load hours. So when you see a, an advertisement for a heat pump in Ontario and they claim a 10 HSPF, that's not, that's not the climate region five number. That's the climate region four number. Okay. You have to divide that 10 by 1.15 to come up with the uh, climate region five efficiency rating. So if you want to get a good, solid performing heat pump for a cold climate heat pump for climate region five, you've got to find the highest HSPF number you can get uh, to, to, to reap those benefits. So that's how the climate region works. It's, a, it's just basically a standard that AHRI uses to uh, develop those numbers. Okay, that, 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 that makes a lot of sense. It clears it up. So, I mean, you talked about some control strategies in the article as well. Um, unrestricted mode and, and restricted mode, if you want to touch on that for a second. Well, the original air source heat pumps that were um, either all electric or <clears throat> add-ons use the thermostat basically to determine what was going to happen next. So in, in unrestricted mode, the indoor thermostat basically started the unit on a call for heat. It would start the outdoor unit. The outdoor unit would run, and as long as it was providing adequate heat, the system would cycle on and off, as you might expect. So as the outdoor temperature continued to drop and the the capacity of the heating capacity of the outdoor unit dropped, um, the thermostat would the two-stage thermostat would eventually call for second stage. So with in unrestricted mode, what would happen is typically you'd be connected to an electric air handler with some heat strips downstream of the coil. You could bring on 5, 10, 15, 20 kilowatts of electric heat to run in conjunction with the heat pump. So then all of a sudden you would get a big boost of heat. The thermostat would typically be satisfied and the system would shut off eventually. So on the very next call for heat, the same thing would happen again. The outdoor unit would start. And then if it wasn't adequate, if the system wasn't keeping up, second stage would call and the electric heaters would come on again. And this would, this as the outdoor temperature got colder and colder and the heating capacity got less and less, the unit would work this way every time. You'd have a period of time where just the outdoor unit ran and then finally some electric heat would come on. And that was a little bit clunky really because you know, the original heat pumps heated with very low temperature rise air. I mean, you'd be lucky if the air coming out the registers was 90 degrees Fahrenheit, which sounds warm and it should be warm enough to heat the room. But if it's blowing across your body, <laughs> that's not warm. Yeah, exactly. And, and then, it, it sounds almost like that you might be short cycling those, uh, those heat strips in, in this unrestricted mode if it's really, really cold outside. That, that's typically what could happen. Yeah. Yes. And, you know, the customers would often complain. They would say, well, you know, those for a while there'd be really cool air coming out, and then all of a sudden it'd get hot, and then the system shuts off. So, you know, I, I think clunky kind of fits the, uh, the situation there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So, so what about the other mode in, in restricted mode? How how does that differ? Well, in restricted mode, and this is the really the only way you can operate an add-on heat pump because the coil is is downstream of the heat of the gas furnace or the oil furnace, so you cannot have the two systems running together. So, in restricted mode, you're going to set it up so that when first stage of the thermostat calls, the outdoor unit will start, and it will run until uh, the, the the heat pump just isn't producing enough heat, and 
the outdoor unit will then stop on a second stage call and then the gas furnace or oil furnace will take over and continue the, the cycle. So that, that could be set up in an unrestricted mode as well. And you would just get the forever, this heat pump on, heat pump off, gas furnace on, gas furnace off. Um, this, and this, this could, you know, run like this all winter. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So essentially what you would do is you would set up an outdoor thermostat and you would tell the outdoor unit to shut off at this particular temperature based on what's called a balance point. And the balance point is just a calculation that's supposed to be done by the contractor. They're supposed to know the heat loss of the house. They plot that on a chart and then they plot the equipment capacity on the chart and the, the two lines cross each other and where they cross that is the balance point and typically for most add-on systems that are properly sized and add-on heat pumps are supposed to be sized for the cooling load so typically a, a balance point would be somewhere in the 30 degree fahrenheit range 28 to maybe 34 fahrenheit roughly speaking and that's the point where typically the uh, the outdoor unit is going to stop and hand over the, the heating assignment to the indoor unit. So that's what you would want to do. And, uh, you know, the contractor would have to set this balance point fairly carefully because if it was set too low, that would basically be unrestricted mode. The heat pump would run and run and run when the outdoor temperature was too low and it wouldn't satisfy and second stage would call but it wouldn't be allowed to take over so the customer of course would complain about that once again there's cold air coming out the registers and on the other hand if the uh, outdoor thermostat was set too high the heat pump would shut off too early and uh, the fossil fuel would take over and you know you'd be leaving some heating dollars on the table there so mm -hmm. you know it had to be you know you had to put some consideration into it so so is it fair to uh, say that back 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 in in, in the, these times when these heat pumps first came out that there was a lot of upset customers is it fair to say that oh absolutely like i i wrote an article previous to this about my experience with heat pumps and um I said in the article, in my previous article, that I worked for a manufacturer who I, I won't, I won't name, but they decided to get out of the HVAC business, and they just called us up one day and said, "It's over." You know, hope hope all goes well for you. So wow. we were left with all this equipment and uh, really not an awful lot of support. So we ended up converting a lot of the units to air conditioners. Some were taken out. Uh, it was not pleasant. So I, I never installed another heat pump after that. Uh, and that would have been uh, mid-80s that that happened. Mm -hmm. There's still a lot of them went in. And I, I know some contractors may be listening to me and saying, you know, that guy's full of it. Uh, you know, and there were some units that were really well installed proper balance points and you know they did work well but by and large uh i would say that the original iteration of uh, uh, uh heat pumps uh, were not suited for this climate at all so what what about now so fast forward to now if somebody takes um a modern heat pump and puts it in in climate or region Region five, will it work efficiently now because of the the upgrades and and, and the education and the and the and the learning curve that we've had on these? I I think they're a lot better. Yes. Yeah. Um, okay. The the um, the systems are first of all the manufacturers have gone to great lengths to uh, improve the refrigeration side, and one of the things you see in the cold climate heat pumps now is this idea of dense vapor injection okay where they're taking liquid and subcooling it and then 
getting it to start changing its state and then feeding it directly into the top of the compressor. Because normally what happens with a heat pump is as the outdoor temperature gets colder and colder, you end up with a lot of liquid in the outdoor coil that's literally just being stored there. You know, uh, it, it, it's, it just kind of stays there and does nothing. So if you can if you can utilize that unused liquid in colder temperatures, your, the ability to capture more heat is there. So these, these new cold climate heat pumps, especially the ductless units, um, which is, are utilizing these uh, <clears throat> vapor-injected compressors, are doing, you know, phenomenal work. I mean, the Panasonic and Mitsubishi's, uh, I mean, they're delivering almost full capacity down to, what, minus 13 Fahrenheit in, in many cases. So, I mean, that's just been a huge sea change. Uh, and the, they've got better control over the uh, defrost. The defrost periods are shorter and more efficient. The units are only defrosting when absolutely necessary. Uh, the, the, the indoor controls, especially when you have a multi-split system, you know, a zone system, mm -hmm. they're uh, much more efficient. Um, oh, just everything about them is uh, uh, 100% better compared to what we used to have, certainly. Awesome. Okay. <laughs> that probably makes but I still, a lot of people I feel mean, better. <laughs> I, I still, well, I mean, you're going to read some bad stories about them, too. I mean, I, yeah. I, I mean, heat pumps suffer from, well, you know, installation and maintenance-related issues. I mean, one of the things with an outdoor unit is, is that it has to be sited properly. You don't want to have it facing a northwest wind or a prevailing wind. Uh, you have to make sure that it doesn't get buried in snow. Uh, you, you have to prevent water from dripping from overhangs that are going to, you know, jam up the fan. Things like that. Um, line set lengths, that sort of thing are critical with heat pumps, well, with any refrigeration device, really, I shouldn't just qualify that for heat pumps. But nevertheless, you know, there's the little things. And of course, the homeowners, are they have to keep the filters clean and they, they need to get maintenance every year. Mm -hmm. No, I, I totally it's, agree with you, yeah. You know, if, uh, there's no there's really no sense in, in, uh, in running a system without you know, making sure that the coil is clean and the blower wheel is clean. I mean, I just watched a video the other day of some techs washing a blower wheel in a uh, ductless mini split. I mean, the thing was just outrageously dirty. After was it uh, was it uh, was it um, from India? The video? No, it was uh, it was a, a couple of guys who were using a, that new. Uh, uh, coil cleaning uh, uh, pump that I've seen it on LinkedIn several times now. They have set a bib up on it, and I think they were uh, from the U.S. somewhere. forget the name of the company. It may have been one of Brian Orr's buddies. Okay. Doing it. So I, the reason you know I Brian. asked you... Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know, I know Brian, yeah. One of his I, I've never met the man. <laughs> well, one of his buddies made it made a video. Was it the speed clean? Was it speed clean? I, that, I I've, think, see, I've seen I a bunch of those videos lately. I think that's what it was, yeah. Okay, cool. The, the reason I asked you if it was from India is because I've seen really interesting videos um, from India where they, they basically take all these indoor heads out and they take them outside because they're just filthy. Because, the I mean, obviously in India, the conditions are way different then over here things get dirtier quicker um and they just have these things lined up like in an alleyway and they're just power washing the they're power washing the electronics everything they're just they're just get, get they're just giving it to them right and and that's the reason i asked you because i've seen a, a ton of those videos on online um so also in your article this is kind of a, a segue into the last part of it um you're kind of writing about how Years and years and years ago, you would you would see systems in residential applications that would heat a home, and the home would be 
uh, nice and comfortable. Then it came to a point where um, that just stopped happening, right? Where we had hot spots, cold spots, and the, the comfort level in the home wasn't as adequate as it once was, right? Well, that that probably has a lot to do with, uh, and I've, I've also written about this in the past. I, I mean, originally, if you look at the housing, especially the post-war housing in the 40s and 50s, they were they were like little square boxes. And typically the furnace was right in the middle of the basement with two equal length trunks and, you know, runouts going to the rooms. And I mean, these systems were, this these were true central heating systems. Uh, they almost balanced themselves and they worked beautifully. Um, but if you, it's kind of interesting if you look back into the history of housing, a, a lot of people, especially in the late fifties uh, and early sixties started to really resent this kind of housing because it, it was, they saw it as soul crushing, right? There's that famous song, uh, all the ticky tacky houses, all the little boxes, little boxes uh, made famous by a folk singer named Pete Seeger. And it seemed to me that that was a turning point right there uh, when the architects started designing uh, different styles of housing. I mean, we had the back split and the side split and the multi-levels. And <laughs> so, so the architect, houses. the architect took um, <laughs> took offense to the song, I guess. <laughs> I think so. That's my opinion. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> so when you have houses like that, all of a sudden, and, and then you you started running into this notion that the basement was no longer a basement. They started calling it the unfinished recreation room. Mm-hmm. So to show prospective buyers that there was lots that could be done with the basement, it's amazing how many times the furnace got moved to, oh, I've seen them under stairwells and at one end of the house, uh, just in the craziest places. And then you have all this convoluted ductwork with, uh, you know, um, ductwork going under beams and uh, uh, very tight all the fittings are tight, tight, tight. There's no radius to them at all. Uh, some of these furnaces don't even have a throat on the return air boot. And I mean, air is a commodity. It, it, it likes, you know, nice sweeping turns, <laughs> you know? It's kind of like a racetrack where you have a racing car going. They, they always stick to the apex of the corner. They don't they never go around the heel or the boot of the or the heel of the elbow. It's the in, interior radius that's important. So the the duct systems just became overly restrictive, in my view, even though on paper they weren't. Uh, and and it was this idea of of uh, return airs. Uh, most houses are. I don't know if most is accurate, but many houses have just totally inadequate return air systems, especially on the second floor. So once you started getting into these kind of designs, the HVAC systems started getting um, mud in their faces because the it, 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 I think it's pretty much um, you know almost an old proverb now that the second floor is you know cold, hot in the summer. So the first floor is nice, and you can hang meat in the basement. You often hear people say that. Oh yeah, it's it's absolutely and true. Yep. So these houses were actually never designed for air conditioning either. I mean, when I when I first started working for a contractor back in the late '60s, this is when Meadowvale was 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 being built. You've heard of Meadowvale, the subdivision in, in Mississauga, Mississauga Oakville. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's when the first phase of Meadowvale started, and those those houses, they had, uh, you know, they were using the the old 50% AFUE chimney vertically vented gas furnaces, the old Lennox G8s and the Anthes uh, gas for Claire was another one that was used, and nobody'd heard of central cooling in those days. And that duct systems were never designed for it. 
So when the central cooling started to become something people wanted and the systems were, you know, available at a, at a affordable price, people started installing them. And a lot of those houses have just had terrible HVAC ever since. And you got to figure a lot of those houses are on their second, maybe third furnaces by now. Mm-hmm. You know, it, they probably had new windows and doors and maybe some other upgrades, but uh, they still have the same crummy old HVAC system unless it was completely renovated too, which I doubt in, in many cases. Did so you... this is why I'm talking <clears throat> about hybrids because they're the perfect place, I mean, to put a, you know, like a, a multi-split system or a, a small duct high-velocity system, you know, where you have a, one of those Unico systems that uses um, high velocity. Yeah, yeah, like a, yeah, the, uh, high velocity, like the round, like the round duct systems. Yeah, small yeah. two-inch or inch and a yeah. half duct. Uh, the, uh, the nice thing about the small duct high velocity systems is, is that you get excellent air penetration into the room. You know, you get that aspiration they call it, where it mixes very well. Where the forced warm air systems, I mean, you're really depending on good duct design. You know, if you've got a floor register that's supposed to have 80 CFM, and uh, you know it's got drapes hanging over it or furniture on top of it, or it's not getting the 80 CFM that it's supposed to have, then you're not going to get the throw of the air out into the room, so you get proper mixing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it just doesn't happen. And yeah. a lot of these. A lot of homes have very poor returns, so you know if you're trying to get 80 CFM into a room with no return air, how's that going to work? So it's just you know the, the the all this high efficiency equipment is great. I love it all, but uh, you know unless unless the well, it's an automotive analogy. Is, is one of my favorites is, is you know if you if you have the money to go out and buy a Lamborghini, why why would you spend the money on it if all there was was gravel roads to drive it on? You know that had lots of turns and constantly went uphill. That wouldn't be any fun at all. Yeah, true. Plus yeah, you'd true. plus you'd wreck your car. So you know if you're going to put a 20 sear air conditioning system into a house that's like that, it's just a waste of money in my view. Mm-hmm. Um, um, unless you intend to renovate the, the air handling system. So it's better to maybe abandon the forced warm air system and perhaps go with the ductless in some cases. Like a multi-zone duct, like ductless system? Is that what you're talking about? Yeah, something like that, sure. You also had uh, written down some other stuff, some other ideas, how we could get like a even um heat and even cool um within the home like um using like a a boiler system that has radiant floor heating or or using um a couple of different air handlers with um heating coils in them that would distribute heat to different places of the home um depending on the temperature obviously of those areas right oh yeah that was uh john siegenthaler's conceptual drawing that i used um, he's another contributor to HPAC as well. John Siegenthaler and Robert Bean are just uh, true experts when it comes to this sort of thing. John is a is a, is a hydronic guru, but I in his drawing there, I mean, you've got a boiler, you've got an indirect fired hot water tank, you've got some some in floor heating there. And, uh, oh, there's all other things you could add on to that, towel warming and all of that stuff. And then you've got a couple of, uh, you know, air handlers for, for perhaps uh, uh, remote applications or maybe a, an addition or something like that. Or it could be a small duct high velocity system that you're pumping some hot water to. So, I mean, that, I mean, that to me looks like an ultimate hybrid there. Mm-hmm. So, so in your in your mind, that something like that would be the best way to go if you're going to spend the money and do it right, and you're going to build the ultimate hybrid would be would be doing it that way with with a boiler and so, some air handling. Well, you know, 
you look at you look at some of these new boilers, low hung boilers, condensing boilers that they have are, you know, doing a great job. Um, and the fact that they could do so many things uh, is, to me, the uh, the ultimate. I mean, it makes forced warm air system is the, basically the Volkswagen, if you will, <laughs> the old Beetle Volkswagen mm-hmm. uh, of heating systems now compared to what there is out there. Awesome. Cool. So I wanted to I ask would, you. Sorry, sorry, go on. Well, I was just going to say, if I if I were to build a new house, certainly I would, uh, I, I'm not really sure if I would adopt the passive house standard or go to, uh, you know, the um, Energy Star standards that they have out there now. Perhaps I would uh, I'd certainly insulate it very well and try to reduce the heating load as much as possible. But I'm, I'm pretty sure I would I would uh, invest in uh, probably a uh, maybe a wall hung boiler kind of, uh, to do my hot water and some, some other stuff. I'd, I'd, of course, I'd want to have the uh, air handlers for cooling. So I, I'm sure that that would be a fairly expensive way to go. So I'd have to save up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, no kidding. I, I mean, save like, my pennies for that system. I, I, I personally love, um, if I go into somebody's home and they have any type of in-floor heating, I, I love it because in the wintertime, I love being warm. Like, I'll sit with the fireplace on, um, and I'll sit right beside it and with a blanket just because I'm outside. Well, I'm outside like most of the time. So when I get home, I'm cold. My bones are cold. So I, I like to be warm when I come home. So I think having a zone system, like in-floor heating, a zone system um, where you could turn the zone on and off depending on the temperature of the room. And then a couple air handlers, like you said, for maybe additional or, or airflow or if you implement an HRV for fresh air and then for the cooling side, have those air handlers there as well. But I think, yes, the, the, um, in homes today, having the first floor being comfortable, um, in the summer than the, the top floor being not so comfortable because it's the, the thermostats on the, on the first floor, it doesn't know what the temperature is upstairs and it's going to satisfy before upstairs is cool enough. So having a right. couple air handlers, one for upstairs, alone would 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 be so nice um but the way the homes are built they would have to make room for (laughs) two air handlers so there's the other thing too and um i wanted to ask you a question i thought was was interesting when you mentioned the um these old homes that the uh (laughs) gentleman wrote the song about and you said that the air handler was right in the middle of the basement is that where they got the term central heating system because it was in the middle of the basement that's it wow wow that, that's that's really cool because i when you said that it kind of clicked and i'm like it's in the middle of the basement it's called centralized heating so that's probably where they got the name from so yeah so so i learned something new from that thanks Ian. <laughs> and, and you can see i mean if you're going to finish a basement having a furnace right in the middle of it is oh not it sucks ideal. Yeah. yeah it sucks yeah so, so what what you can do is is move it to the wall and come off with a, a Y branch and, and down the center beam uh, works fairly well, too. I mean, you got a, a, a little bit more restriction with a Y branch in there, but, you know, the furnace is now off to one side. But, uh, I mean, a lot of times the furnace just got put in places where it never should have been. Yeah, especially at one end of the basement, you can't you can't do that. I mean, <laughs> if the thermostat's at the other end of the house, by the time it's satisfied, the end of the house that the furnace is in will be roasting. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, or it, vice it, versa. It's funny in my house. My laundry room is on the uh, the second floor, um, but the diffuser. I got a diffuser in the laundry room. the The amount of airflow that comes out of that diffuser. For that laundry room, the laundry room is is literally like six by six. That's a it's not very big. Um, right. There's more airflow that coming out of that diffuser than there is coming out of like the the, the two in my bedroom. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. <laughs> well, so. you see, that's the other thing too. And a lot of new construction houses are never commissioned. They're not. They don't. 
in commercial buildings, or a lot of commercial buildings, they have a tab technician test, adjust, and balance tech go through and set up the system to make sure that the airflow is correct. And I, I started taking a TAD course one time years ago from the National Environmental Balancing Bureau at Durham College. And I basically had to bow out of it because I didn't have the experience in commercial buildings to really press on with it. But in residential buildings, um, when that homeowner takes over the house, Nobody has ever gone around to make sure that all the, the ducts are working and that the air flows are correct. Uh, I, I, have you ever seen a heating plan for a residential building? I, well, I was just about to say, so my, my home is about six, six and a half years old or just over six. And when we, when we moved in, the, um, the builder, the representative from the builder that went through the home with us and we were checking everything, he told us specifically, and he called it a heat balance. He said a, a heat balance was done on your duct okay. system. He says it was okay, done, but, but, when I, <laughs> but if they did a proper balance, I wouldn't have that much airflow coming out of a diffuser in a six-by-six six laundry room and less coming out of my bedroom diffuser. So it, it, I don't know. I don't know if they actually did it or if they just said they did it. I have no idea. Oh, you know, I've, I've been through several residential buildings searching for air handling related problems. And, you know, quite often the master bedroom is the culprit. It's just not getting the air flow it's supposed to. Mm-hmm. But then you'd find other crazy things like little interior powder rooms that are just a toilet and a pedestal sink. Even with the register closed, you're getting 30 or 40 CFN. And they should only be getting, you know, 10 or 15 kind of thing. Yeah. So what, what used to frustrate me was that uh, being a factory representative, I used to get involved in customer disputes a lot. And uh, this one particular gentleman, he was having so much trouble that I, I couldn't believe that he had the proper furnace and duct system in his house. So we, we went to the city hall was actually Richmond Hill or uh, Vaughn and demanded to see the heating plan and uh, approved plan and they, they wouldn't show it to us. <laughs> so he, he finally raised enough of a stink that we got a hold of it and I, I got the original drawing and the heating layout and the summary and it turns out that they put the wrong furnace in his house and the ductwork was all undersized. He'd already lost a compressor on the cooling side and the building wasn't heating properly. So, you know, this kind of stuff can happen. Yeah. So I, I think that the, the, the heating layout and the summary, which shows the, uh, the uh, designed airflow for every room, should be part of the house. It should be laminated and attached to the furnace or in the furnace room somewhere so a technician can see what's supposed to be going on. Yeah, no, I, I totally agree with you. Okay, I mean, so so to to wrap things up here, um, how how do we go about fixing this? I mean, besides the hybrid, the hybrid um, units, like taking taking bits and pieces of things and kind of amalgamating them together and doing a little bit more planning. Is there anything we can we can do to make sure that we have full comfort in a home? Well, I think it. You know, part of it really depends on the contractor and how well informed they are, especially when their salespeople goes through the house. I mean, they're supposed to do, or you know, a good HVAC salesperson will do what's called a needs assessment, and they should be asking the homeowner questions like, you know, do you have hot and cold spots in the in the house, or is it is the system noisy, or have you had a lot of trouble with it? But if they're saying that the upstairs is cold in the winter and hot in the summer, that, that's that's an, a, a serious red flag. And the, 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 the salesperson should immediately shift gears away from another uh, forced warm air system, in my view. Um, you, you can put in all the variable speed fans you want. They're not going to solve the problem driving more air to the second floor and they're just going to use more electricity in the end is what's going to happen. So what you need to do on the second floor is 
uh, get a ductless system up there or a small duct high velocity system. Uh, maybe the furnace is good enough. You can you can use it uh, uh, to just to heat the, the maybe the first floor and basement kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but otherwise, uh, you know the, the when you go into inter, it's not it's just not a, a business of replacing boxes. If you're truly interested in the customer and interested in the comfort, then you have to abandon the old ways. If the customer is going to have the house gutted and the walls torn apart, yeah, that's the perfect opportunity for you to go in and renovate the duct system if they want to continue with forced warm air. Pardon me, but other than that, it's not it's not happening. Yeah. Well, what about um, one last question? What about zoning the second and the first floor? With, with some dampers and putting in some sort of a bypass damper to, to help with airflow if, well, if one of them closes down? Well, zoning has been, first of all, there's two kinds of zoning. There's zone, what we call zoning by equipment, where you have a furnace and air conditioner dedicated to, you know, maybe the second floor and another furnace and air conditioner dedicated to the first floor and basement uh-huh. or something like that. That that would be one way to split it. Um, so you can zone by equipment, which is a- a- actually the easiest way, the best way. Or you can go with a, a, a zoning system. And believe me, the original zoning systems, the ones that uh, that used the um, bypass dampers and dump zones and things like that, they they were just a horror show. <laughs> uh, uh, they were so poorly set up in in many cases and uh, uh, caused heat exchanger failures and compressor failures because of just too much air being bypassed. I was just about to say that. I've got a building that has um, their zones just like that with bypass dampers and and whatnot. And the amount of heat exchangers and compressors that that go because of airflow issues is ridiculous. Uh, Well, the, the latest residential systems use three strategies for uh, airflow control, and one of them is, is equipment modulation. The second is variable speed fans, and then the third is a concept known as relief. So the system is set up so that on a when a you know grandma's room calls for 80 CFM. The system will start, but the outdoor unit will start on low stage, and the variable speed air handler will ramp to its lowest possible speed. And then grandma's zone will open up completely, but if that's not enough to keep the system happy, all the other dampers will open slightly to provide what's called relief, Mm -hmm. right? So, so the other dampers will be open, but they won't be open enough to affect the temperature in those zones, but they'll be open enough to bypass enough air that the, uh, the, the system uh, the equipment won't be affected unduly. So that, that's the way uh, the modern systems work. That's the way carriers work, trains, new system works like that. So that to me, if you're gonna do force form air ducting, you, you have to spend the money on uh, staged equipment, variable speed air handlers, and you know uh, uh, the, the matching zoning system. Big big dollars. Oh yeah, big dollars. For yeah, yeah, cool. I mean, it, I mean, HVAC in the old days when I first started was cheap. A furnace and a duct system. I'm talking about furnaces that had like a pilot light and a, you know, a a 12VA transformer in them and a belted fan. I mean, that was it. Yeah. Some some of those are still around, running (laughs) till this day. Absolutely. Yeah. (laughs) It's amazing. It's amazing how this this newer equipment costs costs more, more bells and whistles, but in the long run, the amount of maintenance and and repair costs could add up (laughs) like a, a hefty dollar, right? Well, and if the equipment is misapplied and it, it short cycles or it has uh, control board failures or it it has 
you know, plug venting or whatever it is that can go wrong with these things. Um, for for every service call, you know, you've got a truck on the road that's burning gas and needs tires. You know, that that it's all energy. So if it's being wasted by the service company, you might as well add that wasted energy to the to the budget of that particular furnace because um and then you would see how much the, the high efficiency is just not worth it in some cases so i'm going to leave a link to ian's article in the podcast notes hybrid mechanical systems here comes the future from HPAC Magazine, Heating, Plumbing, and Air Conditioning. So you can read it and kind of take in the information at your own pace because I think there was some stuff in the article that we didn't really get to touch on because, I mean, the article is a little bit more in-depth, okay? And there's actually some um, some drawings, some diagrams, as Ian spoke about in the article as well, which gives you a visual to kind of understand what we were talking about. So. Do me a favor, guys, if you can, the apps that you're using to listen to the podcast, I don't know which app you're using, but if you could shoot me a review in the app, that would really, really help me um, just kind of spread the word of the podcast, spread the love, spread the education. You guys have a great Easter weekend. If it's past Easter weekend, when you listen to this, I hope you had a great Easter weekend. I hope you found some eggs. I hope the Easter bunny was good to you. I'm out. Happy HVACing.